You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr. Mick Pope. For those of you who might be listening, following on from my two-week interview with Brooke Prentice, a fantastic conversation that was, the general vibe of the program is it's often just me, and this week I'm going to be freewheeling some ideas, asking the question of why people struggle to cope with the idea of climate change or COVID, these sorts of things, and and whether or not biblical Christianity gives us a handle on what to do with this. Next week, I'll be looking at the whole idea of panpsychism, belief in God and climate change, looking at Philip Goff's book, Galileo's Era. But after that, uh, there will be hopefully a two to three part conversation with a friend of mine whose name was mentioned in one of my episodes with Brooke. So I won't tell you what her name is yet, but if you go back and listen, then you'll know uh, I've got someone lined up. So hopefully that's a, that's a good mix um, more and more interviews coming up, but it's me thinking out loud about things and sharing with you some of the really good books I've been reading. So with that um, aside, let's get to the meat of the sandwich, or the salad if you prefer. Uh, why do people simply not get climate change or COVID? And by that, I mean there's there's typically the rush to ignore these problems. And I think, you know... Um, that includes those of us um, who think about these things. I mean, at one level, of course, it's a coping strategy. Who can think about climate change 24-7? Although, of course, it's been often noted that if you can switch off on social justice issues as a whole, that's a, a statement about privilege. But at the same time, uh, it is also a coping strategy. You can't think about the problems all the time. You must find some way of setting them aside to enjoy life because life is there to be enjoyed as well as injustices to be battled. So even those of us who, who meant to think about this a lot will ignore it as a, some kind of coping mechanism. But of course, there are those who ignore climate change or COVID in, in some capacity or other. Uh, there's denial, of course, which is just to steadfastly refuse to accept these things. And climate change denial is a, a very obvious thing. And there are subtler forms of denial, like saying that you accept it, but then choosing not to do something about it. Maybe it's a, a lack of choice in personal circumstance or, or behaviours, or it's if you have the policy control reins of doing little or nothing, or we're still saying you're doing something and, and actually not really doing anything at all. And I just read about something today, a, a form of vaccine denial, a, a hospital in the United States where the maternity ward will not operate because too many of the nurses have quit over not wanting to be vaccinated. Then there's the go back to normal crew, and that's very much a COVID thing, isn't it? Um, we all want life to, quote unquote, go back to normal, go back to traveling, 
go back to eating out. You know, a lot of these things are, are really good things, but it's it's not going to happen for a time because COVID is not so simple to command. Um, we have this idea of mastery, human mastery. It comes from, from Bacon, who talked about a, a knowledge of nature as mastery, the ability to control it, and it's simply these things uh, escape us. And then, of course, uh, you get conspiracy theories where it's simpler to try and make something up to develop a narrative that helps you cope. I've got four ideas that I've briefly jotted down that help us with these things. Uh, and these are all, they've probably got more technical terms and approaches to them, but see how these fly for you. The first is that the past predicts the future, uh, which is to say there's a consistency in human experience, in our human experience from day to day. Now, if you think, pause to think about it, going to sleep is one of the scariest things you can do because you don't, you lose your state of consciousness and you expect that you'll pick it up again in the morning. Uh, I don't mean to disturb you. I'm, a, I'm recording this late at night. I will go to bed at some point. Um, that you expect to wake up again. But if you died in your sleep, you wouldn't know that you died in your sleep because you're not conscious. Um, but the normal expectation is that I go to sleep and in the morning I will wake up. It's that the past dictates what the future will look like. Uh, your health. If you're healthy now, you generally expect to be healthy tomorrow and so on, and that will continue over time. Likewise, if you suffer chronic, um, some kind of chronic condition, then that seems to be a predictor as well, and that's a, a less happy one, of course. Uh, we have a general sense of personal autonomy that lasts somewhere between the nursery and infirmity, which is to say that you can start to make your own decisions as you become more conscious, aware and wise, uh, and can decide more and more things for yourself and become independent. That's certainly in a Western context, until one becomes infirm and others again decide for us what it is that we'll do. And this is often manifest in routine in life. And even the freest of spirits has their own routines, the things that they do, if you You'll forgive me religiously. When it comes to climate, you've got things like farmer's almanacs, which is to look back at this date over many, many years and say, well, there you go. That's what the weather will be or more likely to be. And that, of course, takes a more technical approach in climate statistics. And in the Australian context, you probably heard the Dorothy McKellar poem about the land of drought and flooding rains. And people will say, oh, we're going through a drought. Well, it's going to rain again sometime and just rely upon that past clockwork-type behavior. Then there's the idea that uh, we think in a linear fashion in a non-linear world. So change is often gradual. I don't grow old overnight. I grow old slowly. I can kind of track the change. If you think about something simple as tossing a ball up into the air and letting it fall back down, well, gravity is pretty much a constant, so the acceleration down was as constant, and so ignoring wind resistance, to keep the problem simple, um, you always, you, know, you get the same kind of result every time, and the mathematics, if you're mathematically inclined, is pretty straightforward. You can talk about, um, to use the technical language, a linear differential equation, which is simply a fan fancy way of saying that gravity is constant, and it's the only thing that counts. You toss the ball up with initial velocity and it falls back down again and it's entirely predictable and quite straightforward. You can solve it, if again, if you have that mathematical bent, pretty simply. Likewise, when you turn up a heater, there's a pretty direct relationship between uh, turning up the heat and the temperature that you get out. It's, it's a linear type thing. And so we think in pretty much linear terms. 
But we live in a non-linear world where there are things like feedback mechanisms. A classic example of feedback mechanism, of course, is uh, playing an electric guitar. So you strum the strings and you get a certain response. You've got the pickups, which uh, pick up the, the vibrations in the string, and you get the sound out. And how loud it is depends upon how much you turn up the volume on the guitar and your amplifier. But as soon as you put the guitar in front of the amp, you pick up the sound coming out, uh, which vibrates the strings, and, and you get that feedback mechanism, and you get noise which you may or may not find aesthetically pleasing. We're in a world where we burn fossil fuels and release um, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, the atmosphere becomes warmer and you get a water vapour feedback which means you drive more evaporation and water vapour, so that's water in its gaseous phase, is a greenhouse gas. Uh, and that's a that's a natural feedback. We know about this so it's not it's the burning of fossil fuels that drives this feedback. And then if the planet becomes warm, then the permanently frozen soil in Siberia, in the tundra, starts to melt. Bacteria start to initiate decay of the organic material and releases methane, which is a greenhouse gas. So feedback mechanisms drive the system in a non-linear fashion. The temperature doesn't rise steadily, it can jump in what could potentially be a catastrophic type way. The third thing, I think, is that the idea, and it's probably got a better term, of a, sh a creeping baseline, which means to say that we have short memories uh, and forget about what it is we've already lost. So I read in the news that there was a pod of 80 whales, I forget what type of whale, but a pod of 80 whales observed recently off the New South Wales coast. How many more would we have seen before whaling? How many species are there in the world today that would have been far more common than we observe today? How used to are we seeing so few of those things or having less encounters with the sheer overwhelming abundance of a creature? In 1813, John James Audubon in the United States wrote of the passenger pigeon, the light of noonday was obscured as by an eclipse. And more disgustingly, the dung fell in spots not unlike melting flakes of snow. Now, that's pretty revolting, is it not? But the point was that the sun was pretty much blacked out by passing flocks of passenger pigeons. And elsewhere, he talks about how that could be for three days. And yet they're all gone. And we don't remember. Or we haven't experienced it. So you learn, it's, it's a bit like the frog in the pot uh, illustration. You boil the, the pot slowly and the frog doesn't notice. We just get used to there being less and less of the magnificence of the natural world around us. And people will talk about freedoms in the same kind of capacity, but I think that's, that's often used as a red herring for reasons we won't go into now. And finally, people want a narrative that gives them control and the sense of meaning. We can't handle randomness. And I think theists included, Christians, should get used to the idea that there are things that are genuinely random. Uh, that life isn't centered around us. And so maybe there is a narrative, but it isn't necessarily centered around all the things that you should wish it should be for yourself. We can't cope with the fact that some suffering might be meaningless in of itself. Because if it is in of itself what does that say about nature of god and i'm not going to recite a horrendous evils i don't want to go there or trigger anyone but you get the idea right there are things you can imagine of if those things had meaning how do you define the meaning i'll come to this in a sec um in fact let me come to it now <laughs> i'm at that point 
We proof text. Christians are notorious proof texters. We all do it. We all have a preferred verses and we should really get away from it. And here's one. Romans 8.28 We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Notice the first thing it says is that all things work together for good. It's not say that, say that all things are good. Uh, Joseph being enslaved and sent into Egypt and his dad thinking that he died is not good. It was not a good thing. Did God cause that directly? Does God cause things that are not good? The verse does not say that all things are good. It just says that all things work together for good and qualified for those who love God who are called according to his purpose. So what good in particular? Later in the passage, it talks about glorification, and Paul, very clearly in mind, has a future resurrection reality. Does glorification depend or not on our suffering? Does it even require our suffering in this life? Is there our lot to suffer? To quote Marvin the Paranoid Android from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. Or indeed C-3PO as he and R2-D2 are trudging through the, the deserts of Tatooine. The context to me seems to suggest religious persecution in particular, standing up for what is right, standing up for the gospel, not suffering per se. One of the books of the Bible that talks about suffering per se is Job. You tell me what the solid answer about the purpose of suffering in that book is, about making sense of death, of loss of loved ones, of loss of possessions, of natural disaster. There aren't the, the leap forward to straightforward answers is not as straightforward as some Christians will make it out to be. Can ill not be willed? but can good to come of it be willed, or at least pointed towards? So these ideas then, that the past predicts the future normally for us, that we think in a linear fashion in a non-linear world, that we live with a creeping baseline with interminably short memories, and that we need a narrative of control to somehow make sense of this, would to me explain a great deal about why people engage in climate change denial, why they turn to conspiracy theories. Because the idea that human action might lead to a catastrophic change in the Earth system and a collapse of civilization as a concept, the idea that we've pushed the natural world so hard that we have little control over this virus, that it might mutate beyond our uh, vaccines, and even if it doesn't, that it's not going to go away in six months, that we should in this case, maybe look a bit to the past and look what happened with the Spanish flu, for example, and that it's burning out is going to take some time and that there is no immediate going back to normal. And maybe this is a society-changing event. Maybe both climate change and COVID are ills, not willed by God, but good can come of them, particularly for Christians to think about how they might reshape their lives and their praxis, the point of church, the way in which we engage in Christian community and how we relate to the world. Maybe going back to, um, I can't remember what period in, in Roman history, but when the plague went through Rome and it's the Christians who stayed back and looked after the sick and the dying. Maybe it's a call back to that, to a genuine sense of good. I want to say some more things about uh, purpose and narrative and texts 
uh, and broad ideas that might help us uh, with this endeavor. And I'll do that in the second half of the program. Well, welcome back. We've been talking about the idea or around the ideas about why it is that we struggle so much with climate change and COVID from a, a kind of cognitive psychological point of view. And I know there'll be more sophisticated treatments of this, but I highlighted the idea that the past predicts the future in a regular world, uh, that we think the world behaves in a linear fashion when it's really non-linear with feedbacks and so on that we suffer a creeping baseline because our memories are so short and can't remember genuinely what the past was like and how we've lost so much and that we have a need for a narrative that gives us control. So how does our faith help us in a time of COVID and climate change? Clive Hamilton is an Australian scholar and he's written a bit about um, the Anthropocene and you remember from previous programs or may be familiar with the concept, the Anthropocene is the idea that human action, particularly that of um, the globalised or the globalised economy of the Western world, it's also called the Capitalocene, which is probably far more accurate, have, um, with our technology and burning of fossil fuels and I think our dualistic approach to, to nature and the idea following Bacon that knowledge is power and that's power to manipulate the non-human world around us, have meant that we have tipped the Earth system in a particular direction. Now, by the Earth system, I mean the combination of atmosphere, oceans, the whole water cycle, the solid Earth, life, which is known as the biosphere, and things like the cryosphere, which is the ice and snow, which reflects sunlight back to space and keeps the Earth cooler than it would be. This whole uh, interrelated nonlinear system has been disrupted by human action and Nonlinear feedbacks will push it further and further away from what's known as the Holocene, or the so-called recent period, the past 11,000 years, that has been um, relatively equitable, warm, kind of steady climate that's given rise to human civilization, the axial religions, writing, agriculture, all these things that we take for granted. Now, Clive Hamilton believes that the unprecedented changes in the Earth system that we have brought uh, mean that no previous cultural learning can prepare us to deal with it. And when he says no previous cultural learning, he means all thought systems. So he means the uh, the axial religions, uh, that is, um, the major belief systems of the world, including Christianity, Judaism, Islam, etc. He means indigenous belief systems, which is I just find a bit peculiar. And he says even if they are, then it's very hard for the Western mind to get in them which is, again, a bit odd, and certainly not modern capitalism. It's that quote, is it by Einstein, that you know, talks about trying to solve a problem by doing the same thing over and over again, using the same conceptual tools. In a paper I need to get back to, uh, to finish and submit, so I can count the extra points towards a PhD application, to say nothing of the fact that I think the concept's good, we uh, approach the 
Anthropocene the same way that uh, the Israelite worshippers of Baal were approaching the drought that they were in. Their worship of the foreign god caused the drought, and so they turned to that same idol to get themselves out of the problem. And I think that's essentially what geoengineering is doing. When I say geoengineering, I mean those massive projects that are ill-conceived and um, involve deleterious impacts to the system. There are there are ways of quote unquote engineering the climate that are that are far more in tune with the way in which the Earth works, and they include not burning any more fossil fuels and planting trees. Um, but more of that for another time. But I think uh, on two counts. Uh, the idea that there's no thought system that comes out of the Holocene in the past 10,000 years or so that prepares us. I think there are biblical approaches that, that do, and I think it's a very white Western thing. All right. So it, it's true in the sense that no civilization has faced the idea of the end of civilization. Not civilizations in the plural, but the concept of civilization. You get four degrees of warming and the world can't hold more than half a billion people at best in isolated pockets at high latitude. Does it become this, you know, dog-eat-dog world, the kind of walking dead type thing uh, where we just battle, we're continually at war with each other? The, those that are left, I mean, let's be honest, part of the problem is that... Um, the Western military-industrial complex has made us at war with everyone, but you get the picture. The idea that civilization as itself disappears as a concept because we can't maintain the ways in which we lived, and that's not really the way we want to reset the system. But while that's the case, that's really what we're facing, it's also true to say that there are civilizations that have faced their own destruction at the hands of random climate variations. So think of the Harappan people in the, I think it's in the Indus Valley, the shifting monsoon saw them disappear. Um, or is it the case of colonialism where there was a strong, well, the defining factor was a human hand. So um, there's a, a paper by Heather Davis and Zoe Todd entitled On the Importance of a Date or decolonizing the Anthropocene. So it's it's common to identify the beginnings of the Anthropocene, this age of human beings or Western human beings being an industrial, sorry, industrial, uh, geological force, judo industry, uh, as being at the start of the Great Acceleration, the post-war boom, nuclear weapons testing, giving us that kind of geological marker. But I, I just want to read and, and riff briefly off their abstract, never mind the bulk of the, the paper, but... We draw, this is the uh, Davis and Todd, we draw upon multiple indigenous scholars who argue that the Anthropocene is not a new event, but is rather the continuation of practices of dispossession and genocide, coupled with a literal transformation of the environment that have been at work for the last 500 years. Further, the Anthropocene continues a logic of the universal, which is, a structured, which is structured to sever the relationships between mind, body and land. In dating the Anthropocene from the time of colonization, the historical and ideological links between the events would become obvious, providing a basis for the possibility of decolonization within this framework. So there's a, there's a whole, there's a lot of stuff packed into that brief statement, and for, for the point of uh, saving time, I won't dwell too much, but it's interesting they talk about 
the logic of the universal, which is essentially, and you see this in the US, you see it in, in Australia. I can remember there was a society at some point in Australia that was devoted to the, for want of a better term, the Englishization of Australia. In other words, people came from England and they wanted to make it more like home. So they brought, obviously they brought sheep and cattle in to eat, but they brought British birds. So that's why I get blackbirds and starlings in my backyard, because they were deliberately introduced to make it more like Australia, because the native flora and fauna were seen as inferior. And it's the idea too, I guess, that we grow wheat here, but why don't we follow... Um, Bruce Pascoe, and, and can start considering growing local grains. Why is there such an inertia? It makes a lot of sense. I mean, there are, there are other things that could go and be replaced by certain other grains that, that are more sensitive to the climate. But the fact that there's um, already native grasses here that we could be eating, and yet these have been overwhelmed by wheat and, and so on, points in this direction of universalization and also the idea uh, they pick up on is the the severing relationships between mind body and land and we talked a lot about country uh, brooke and i over the past two programs and the importance of country the deep-seated spiritual uh, as well as obvious physical connection between aboriginal peoples and their country and the need for us to learn the lessons as, as white colonizers and uh, be guided in that process of discovery what it means to belong to country. So it, it, it seems to me that to suggest that there's no system that uh, doesn't deal with that, well, Indigenous peoples for the past 500 years in the Australian context, the past 250 or so, have been learning to deal with that. So maybe there's something about the way in which they view the world and a back to the future, as it were, to help um, Indigenous knowledge challenge modern western epistemology and ontologies and produce something a new synthesis if you will the other thing is that there's three biblical narratives that i think when we approach them properly and i've talked about these before in the program so i only outline them we've only got like five minutes to go there's the chaos camp which is the the combat or the struggle against chaos in the creation narrative of genesis 1 and in the flood narrative there's the vomiting of the land the vomiting out of the people in Leviticus. And then there's the book of Revelation, properly understood. So let's look at those three briefly. In Genesis 1, uh, you have this muted combat myth where God, using the general Semitic name Elohim, rather than the Israelite covenant name Yahweh, which is translated as the Lord into English very often, there's a process where Chaos is controlled, it's brought into order to create the possibility of a regularly ordered system of regular crops for the people and plants for the wild beasts uh, to eat as well. So there's a provision for all creatures to enjoy uh, the benefits and the bounties of creation and creation itself to enjoy its own functioning. So it sees chaos in a particular manner and you know, I realize there's some complexities to that and some people want to recover the value of chaos and so on and we're not to confuse it with the mathematical concept. But the idea that you, if chaos reigns, you go hungry, there's a problem. Likewise, when violence uh, covers the earth, fills the earth, 
All flesh is consigned to destruction in the biblical flood narrative, which mirrors ancient Near Eastern flood stories, which may be based on the um, filling up of the Mediterranean, but isn't a global literal flood. And it's all meant to point to the fact that, that violence releases disorder in creation. So be it political in nature, uh, wars, a lack of social order, these things can lead to the natural ecosystems being tipped upwards in a quite, quote-unquote, natural sense, or if you like, the justice of God embedded in the natural order of things. It's talking about feedback mechanisms, as we saw earlier. That's manifest in the book of Leviticus, talking about the fact um, for both the people uh, who were removed from the land and for the Israelites who are sojourners and don't have permanent ownership of the land of Israel and the priestly narrative, but it's owned by God and God has a prior and existing relationship to earth slash land, both using the Hebrew word Eretz, that the land can vomit out the Israelites if they engage in covenant unfaithfulness. And there's a very strong, and I think it's related to very closely, um, is emphasized in the Holiness Code, that's Leviticus 17 to 26, of reverencing the, the temple, the sanctuary, and keeping the Sabbath. And Sabbath keeping includes a rest for the land. And the wild creatures too, who get to enjoy the land, the, the agricultural fields, particularly at the time when they're given a rest. So again, there's this idea that it can be a catastrophic ending of things, um, a violent vomiting out by the non-human order when people overstep the mark. And finally, the book of Revelation, I think, does discuss a literal historical return of Jesus. Resurrection is central to Christianity. If you wish to set that aside, then maybe you're following Jesus as the rabbi, but not Jesus as Christ, the Son of God. And I know there are people, Christian, people who call themselves Christian who reject these things, but, you know, to, to make the point, even though I'm a Christian humanist nowadays rather than, quote-unquote, an evangelical, I still see that that's what's central to the New Testament that's handed down to us. And so we make a choice to accept that and work with it and see there's that um, theological theory, what some people call doctrine, works and what you can do with it. And I think you can do a lot with it. See, for example, what I've said and written on Romans 8. But the idea that the book of Revelation... Um, doesn't talk about the literal physical end of space-time, but a catastrophic um, or a, a transformational return of Christ and an inner transformation within the creation now. In other words, it's revelation, if you read it properly, provides a critique of empire in all its forms and a helpful dualism. And when I say helpful dualism, I mean one that recognizes the spiritual realities behind the politics of an age. And so that's not necessarily the same as demonizing a particular politician or Exxon or any of those petrochemical companies, but recognizing that when institutions go wrong, and this is very much echoing or channeling Walter Wink now, then they acquire a spirituality which may very well be in touch with a, a, a realm that we don't see and don't fully perceive or understand, which is not to say that there's a demon of fossil fuel companies, just that the spirituality of a fossil fuel company can be demonic and coupled with the demonic powers and not your classic kind of red tights and forked tail and pointy um, horns type caricature but you get the point that 
Revelation really does say something about politics and what it means to be the people of God when powers that are meant to be for human and non-human flourishing work against that flourishing. And in other words, work against the purposes of God, which is ultimately geared to the flourishing of all things. And indeed, as the book of Revelation reminds us towards the end, uh, that means the gospel is focused on the renewal of all things. And that's where we're headed, and that's why Christians engage in acts of peace and justice, not to bring the kingdom in, but to live the reality that the kingdom is is unfolding now, without denying a future um, return and a shaking up, a discontinuity of, of the present order of things. So that's you know mind-numbingly brief, or mind-numbingly brief. You get the, what I'm trying to say is it's not time to pick things apart, but simply to point into a direction that, yeah, there are issues that we have dealing with the climate change and COVID and running and hiding and sticking our head in the sand won't do it, be it in conspiracy theories or denial or religious uh, systems of belief that glorify the problem, that celebrate it, that think it's part of the end times or the direct will of God to do great harm but instead see it as an opportunity that all things can work together for the good of those who love him and that we're to work for good in that context. Anyway, I hope that's helpful. Uh, see you next week um, when talking about Galileo's error, panpsychism, creation and theistic belief. And then after that, hopefully some really great conversations with a friend of mine. For now, thank you for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.